Amen. Maybe seated. Thank you, Pastor Chris. It's good to see you all this morning. Let's open up our Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. If you don't have a copy of God's Word of your own, we have Bibles right there in the, the tech booth, sound booth behind you. You can go over there and grab one of those. And uh, if you don't own a personal copy of the Word, you can count that as a gift uh, from us to you. <clears throat> but we will be in Matthew chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 21. And this passage comes on the heels of after Jesus has had an encounter with the Pharisees, and they were upset with him because he was doing good on the Sabbath, and they were so upset that they conspired to destroy him. And so Matthew picks up the story in verse 15. And says, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him. And he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel. Or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew has been presenting to us the promised king, a king that has been promised. Uh, ages ago in the Old Testament Scripture, and the kingdom that was to come with this king. However, as we come to the Gospels, and we're seeing these promises unfold, these promises be fulfilled, if you will, they're happening in a way that is unexpected, surprising, startling, if you will, if you were keeping track of the Old Testament promises. In fact, nothing about this story of how Jesus arrives on the scene meets our human expectations for how a king should arise. Nothing that Jesus does meets our expectations for how we think kings should rule, kings should conquer, that kings should accomplish their purposes. Jesus seemingly doesn't do what we in the world think one should do if you're going to reign See, Jesus, from the beginning, was born under suspect circumstances. I mean, you know, if you're going to run for political office, you need to have a clean record, right? Well, Jesus was born under suspect circumstances. He comes from a suspect town. Can anything good come from Nazareth? He proclaims a suspect message. And worst of all, he associates with suspect people. Jesus' entire mission is suspect, isn't it? It's suspicious. And so the questions begin to ask or be raised, what kind of king is Jesus? What kind of man is this? And what kind of kingdom does he bring? That's the question throughout the Gospels. And even when we get to the Gospel of John, and Pilate asks him, where is your kingdom? Are you a king? And he says, my kingdom's not of this world. If it was, my servants would be fighting. My servants would be fighting. 
seems that like Jesus is otherworldly. He is from another planet. What kind of kingdom doesn't have an army that fights? What kind of kingdom doesn't, doesn't take their own and, and, and establish its rule for all to see? Jesus, what kind of king are you? Depending how you fit in this world, what Jesus is doing either draws you in or it pushes you away. You see him and what he promises and you say, I'll gladly give up this world. And you're drawn to him. Or you hear what he talks about and you say, why would I come to you? This world is so much better. It really makes a divide. And in reality, that's exactly what Jesus has been doing in his ministry. He's been presenting us with two ways to live. You can either live for the kingdoms of this world or you can live for the kingdom of the age to come. He says it elsewhere. You cannot serve two masters, right? You'll either love the one or you're going to what? Hate the other. There's no in between. You're either with me or against me. And this is why Jesus says some rather strange things about his kingdom. If you remember in chapter 11, uh, verse 12, Jesus says, The kingdom of God suffers violence, and violent people take it by force. What's he talking about? He's like, My kingdom is in friction with this world. That's what he's saying. My kingdom, my values, my righteousness. It's at odds with this world. And what happens is that this world, like the Pharisees in verse 14, conspire against it and how to destroy it. Do you see that? That's the friction that Jesus gets at. And so this violence, or you might say aggression, is what Jesus says actually characterizes this world. Now that doesn't mean that every single person's like this violent, aggressing, serial killer, okay? That doesn't mean it's the worst. But if you step back and you look at the world, it's built on dead men's bones, right? It's marked by bloody violence. And this is what characterizes this world. Whereas Jesus' kingdom, and this is what strikes us and even at times offends us, is that it's not violent. Jesus' mission wasn't to bear arms, but it was a peacemaking mission. Jesus comes and he, and he says, my kingdom's not for the rich, but for the poor. My kingdom's not for the proud, but the humble. It's not for the strong in the world's eyes, but for the weak. I mean, that's just not a message that sells, does it? Come, only poor Humble and weak people. Everybody else does not apply. That's Jesus' message. And yet here's the promise that Jesus says to all. All who have ears to hear, all who have eyes to see. He promises those who follow him that he will give them life. He will, he will give them eternal life for all who seek the kingdom of God. And he says that your reward is actually great. Your reward's great. Your treasure, well, it's not temporary. It's eternal. And you will live forever and ever in my kingdom. And he adds to it, in whatever you have lost in this world, family, property, friends, riches, you will gain a hundredfold in the world to come. 
That's what Jesus says. I will restore what you have lost a hundredfold. And how will he do this? Will he come as a, as a, a ruling, mighty king who, who instills his army to go take it by force? No. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to what? To serve, right? And to give his life as a ransom for many on a very bloody cross. That is Jesus' mission. He came to die. This is the mission of Jesus, the Son of God, who has come into the world, and he says, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Who's not offended by the cross. Who's not offended by my M.O., my means of establishing a kingdom that will never be shaken. And so looking at Jesus' life, Matthew begins to put this together. We've already had John the Baptist who's begin to wonder as he's, he's been the herald for Jesus. He's been the one who's uh, figuratively rolling out the red carpet for him. And Jesus isn't meeting expectations. Hey, Jesus, just by the way, I'm your biggest champion and I'm in jail. Can you, can you bail me out? And Jesus basically says, no, I, I'm not going to do that. That's not what I'm here to do. Those aren't the prison gates that I'm opening. Blessed is the one not offended by me. And Matthew begins to put all the picture together. And Matthew summarizes the mission of Jesus. It actually shows us by quoting from the prophet Isaiah. And it begins to show us that Jesus is the promised servant of the Lord. He is the promised servant of the Lord prophesied by Isaiah. He is the one whom the Jews have been waiting for, and he is the hope of the world. And he puts it all in, in, in just five verses, who Jesus is and what he's about, so that we would put our hope in him. You see that in verse 21. And in his name, the Gentiles, the nations, the world will find their hope. Do you see that? This is the one. Brothers and sisters, there's no other name under heaven by which men and women find hope. Hope is only found in Jesus and in no one else. And so therefore, this morning, I want to unpack this mission of Jesus. I want us to unpack it, and I want us to see that Jesus is who he said he was, and that we would put our hope in him, who will bring about, as we see here, perfect justice, a perfect rule, a perfect kingdom in this world. And he'll do so for God's glory and our good. So what we see here first is that through Jesus' mission as the servant of the Lord, number one, what does he come to do? He comes and he makes us pleasing to the Father. I want you to see that. As we read here in Isaiah, as quoted by Matthew, we see, behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. Now, this is talking about Jesus. This isn't talking about us. Jesus is the one whom the Father is presenting to us. He's presenting and he's saying, behold, this is my servant. This is my chosen one. And he is the one who I find beloved. My soul, the Father says, is well pleased. The Father takes great delight in the Son. He loves the Son 
with an everlasting, perfect, and never-ending love. That's the Father's love for the Son. And the Father is telling us through Isaiah and now through Matthew that Jesus is the chosen one who is going to fulfill all the prophetic expectations. Now as we read this, the careful listener, maybe, maybe you are hearing that, you've heard these words before. This is my beloved Son. Where have we heard those words before? We heard it at Jesus' baptism, right? All the way back in chapter 3, verse 17, when Jesus is, is, a, is to be baptized, behold, Matthew says, there was a voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, right? We're actually going to hear it again. A few months, maybe, we'll get to Matthew chapter 17. And Jesus is going to pull back the veil, if you will. He's going to bring Peter, James, and John up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he's going to reveal all his glory before them. And a cloud's going to come down. And he's going to say, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. But he adds this, listen to him. Listen to him. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the beloved son of God. So what does that mean? This means that Jesus is the answer to Adam's helpless race. Jesus is the answer for all humanity. He is the Son of God. Now, Adam, who was the first human being, was also a son of God. That's where our mind should be going in some sense. He was a son of God. He was to be God's ruling king over creation, his uh, representative to exercise dominion and authority over all the world on behalf of God, mediating God's rule and blessing to the world. But we know the story, right? Adam was not a pleasing son. He was a disobedient son. He was a rebellious son. And as a result of his rebellion, what has happened? The curse of sin has spread to all humanity, and thus all people now die. I don't have to convince you of that, right? We feel the effects of the curse every day. Some days worse than others, right? Right now, half our church is sick with the flu. We are feeling the curse of sin. And some of you are still here. I don't know why. But anyway, <laughs> we feel it. We feel it even worse when death comes knocking at the door and, and takes a loved one or threatens our own life. This is the result. This is the fruit of Adam's labors. And it's come and wreck devastation upon us. But Jesus is a new Adam, as Paul tells us, who has not rebelled against the Father's will, and he is actually redeeming humanity from the curse of sin. And so now all who come to Jesus and place their trust in him, who follow him, who, as the Father says, listen to him, what does he do for us? He gives us a new title. He calls us sons and daughters of God, right? This is in the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. How's that work? Here's the good news. Because Jesus is the beloved Son, pleasing to the Father, 
all who are united to the Son are now pleasing to the Father. Do you see that? If you're united to Jesus, I want to encourage you, God delights in you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that if you are united to Christ, God delights in you? And that's sometimes very difficult, especially when we feel the flesh. We feel the curse of sin till, still taking its toll on us. We, we know that our hearts are prone to wander, to leave the God we love. And maybe some of you have fallen into sin. You're being tempted to despair this morning. And, 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 and you think, God doesn't love me. But this text says, you are beloved if you're in the Son. If you are united to Christ, he delights in you. And that is good news for us, isn't it, brothers and sisters? It's good news. He delights in you. And some of you need to be reminded of that because you're living in a schizophrenic world. You think, oh, he delights with me when I'm doing so well, and he doesn't delight with me when I'm not doing well. But Jesus says, actually, no, his delight is not contingent upon you. It's contingent upon me, and he takes great delight in me. Come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's what Jesus says. And so Matthew's just putting the, uh, the pieces together. And so we see Jesus' mission as the servant of the Lord was to identify with sinful humanity. He's identified with sinful humanity so that we could identify with him, the sinless son of God. But also, Jesus' mission as the servant of the Lord is to bring us the life of the kingdom. So if you're back in, in Matthew chapter 12, look in the second half of verse 18. We read, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. God's spirit is upon Jesus. It's promised to come upon him. We now know, being New Testament believers, that this is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God. But this is what's phenomenal. Jesus at his baptism is anointed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit rests upon Jesus and empowers Jesus. There's a sense, as some theologians say, that Jesus submits himself under the lordship of the Holy Spirit. And this actually fueled and empowered him to, to proclaim this justice to the Gentiles. Again, we, we saw that at his baptism in, in Matthew 3.16. The Spirit of God descended like a dove and rested upon him. And so what we see in the mission of the Son is actually the cooperation of the Father and the Spirit as well. We have the triune God executing their plan of redemption together in unison. Working. And it's under the lordship of the Spirit that Jesus, as Peter says, goes about doing good and healing all who are oppressed by the devil. That's Acts 10.38. And so when the Spirit descends upon Jesus and rests upon him, what, are, what, what picture should we be uh, uh, receiving? What, sh what message should we be understanding? What we're seeing is that heaven is embracing earth. That's what was happening at that, at that baptism. Heaven was coming down to earth. The voice of God, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And the spirit like a dove comes and descends upon him. In a real sense, God's kingdom will is being done on earth as it is in heaven through Jesus. 
And just as the Spirit hovered over the waters before creation, so the Holy Spirit came to Jesus over the waters of baptism to enact what, we're, what we are hoping for as a new creation, where the curse is lifted and we may enjoy him forever. And it is by the Spirit that Jesus was empowered to carry this mission. Jesus is actually empowered by the Spirit of God, whereby he brings the power of the kingdom into the present. Now, I know that's a lot of theology right there, but Matthew wants us to catch that. And so for this reason, as Jesus begins to teach on the kingdom, what does he do? He doesn't just speak of the kingdom, but he brings the power of the kingdom to bear in everyone's life, right? He does that primarily, we think of through the healings, right? What kind of healings did he do? He brought sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, cleansing to the lepers, life from the dead, and deliverance from the demonic. That's what Jesus does. And I want you to jump down to our passage next Sunday in, in verse 28 of chapter 12. He's going to have another contention with the, the Pharisees, and, and this is over. By what power does Jesus cast out demons? And here was their trump card. They couldn't, in a sense, deny the power. So here's what they say. It's demonic. He does these things by the power of Satan. He's a witch doctor. That's basically what they were saying. Jesus is a witch. But what does Jesus say in verse 28? But if it is by the Spirit of God, see the agency, by the Spirit that I cast out demons, what has happened? Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus' work by the Spirit is bringing the life of the kingdom to all who will believe. And it is also then by the Spirit that actually resurrects Jesus from the dead. And it is the Holy Spirit by, which, by whom Jesus now gives us the Spirit who dwells in us. So what does this mean for us? Let's make this a little more practical. It means that when we come to Jesus, the same Spirit which empowered Jesus for ministry, the same Spirit that rose him from the dead has been given to us. Did you know that? The Holy Spirit resides in each one of us. And so the power of the kingdom, the life of the kingdom, has actually been brought near to us. And what does that mean? He washes us of all of our sins. The power of the new creation is beginning its work. So I we're called the first fruits of the new creation. We're like the little seeds that God is planting in the earth that promises a harvest yet to be reaped. And so we're even now in this room, as weak as this may seem to the world, as insignificant as this may seem to the world, we are a seedbed of the new creation to come, who have been washed by the power of the Spirit. What has the Spirit done? The Spirit's given us new hearts that now hunger and thirst for righteousness, which places God's law on our hearts so that we love him, and now we actually can love our neighbor as ourself. And it is too by the Spirit of God that we will be raised from the dead. That our lifeless bodies that will turn to dust in the grave will be miraculously brought back together and be glorified when Jesus comes. This is all by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so it's by the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit while we too are to make disciples of all nations. And so Jesus, by the Spirit, brings the life of the kingdom. That's why we come to him. He gives us new life. 
new minds, renews our minds, new hearts, and he promises new bodies, and he does that through the power of the Spirit. And so this is the mission of Jesus. But I want you to also see that Jesus' mission also provides us with unmeasured grace. And this is where I think Jesus is, is most controversial. This is where we often forget the grace of God that has been shown toward us. But we see this is where his mission begins to cause trouble, especially among religious people, is that he's by all means gracious. And I want you to see that. Look in verses 19 and 20. He will not quarrel, nor cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench. Hopefully you've heard those verses before. These are some of the most comforting scriptures in all the Bible. Particularly verse 20. They have been a, a source of great hope to the church throughout the ages. Even uh, whole sermons could be preached on that text. Even whole books have been written on that text. The glories of God's mercy in Christ. I think of the song that we sometimes sing, the love of God is greater far. I think you, you get a sense of the love of God and we could plunge its depths and never get to the bottom. The lyrics of that song says, Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above, what would it do? It would drain the ocean dry. We could drain the ocean dry on these passages right here. On this scripture, he will not quarrel. Or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench. These two verses really give definition. They give, they give some, some, some flesh, if you will, to what Jesus meant earlier when he says, Learn from me. Learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly of heart. Jesus' lowliness, his humility. What does that mean that Jesus is humble? I mean, Jesus isn't a sinner. What does he have to be humble about? What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, we see here in verse 19 that Jesus isn't a fighter. He's not a quarreler. He's not a wrangler. I mean, that is, that is so contrary to our human expectations. Win the debate, Jesus. Why don't you just destroy those Pharisees? Because my kingdom's not of this world. That's what they do. You ever find yourself saying, I'm going to destroy that person? Because you're going to wrangle with them. I'm going to give them a piece of my mind. It's not how Jesus is. It's not how Jesus is. Neither does he draw attention to himself or promote himself. And there's a... Just a great contrast, if you will, when he says, he, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. It's the same term for streets that's of the narrow path and the wide path in the Beatitudes. It's the same one where he says, the Pharisees go and stand on the street corners and they have their long robes and they declare their great prayers so that all may see them. 
Jesus isn't like that. He doesn't walk around with pomp and circumstance. He's not making sure that he's in the most influential places so that all may see him. He's not walking on the highways and byways. No, he's in the alleys. He's going to the place where the weak people are. Because he's not here to do his will. He's here to do the will of the Father. He's not like the leaders of his day who stood on the street corners that they may be seen by others. He didn't seek to pick fights but withdrew to the hidden places. I mean, you see that in verse 15. Aware of this. He's aware of the Pharisees' plans. What do you and I do when we're aware of people's plans to do us harm? Some of us flee, but some of us fight. I heard you were saying this about me. This is what Paul gets after when he talks to Timothy. Don't don't find yourself quarreling over endless genealogies and matters about the law. Jesus could have filled his day arguing with the Pharisees about minute details of the law. But you know what? He cared about people more. He had work to do. That doesn't mean there's no place to correct. Jesus corrects, but he doesn't let it consume his ministry. Let me tell you, do you think of quarrelers as gentle people you want to bring your problems to? The person who's the great debater who's able to squash all the arguments, who can dissect it to the most minute detail, those aren't the people you want to go to, are they? Because they'll dissect and dice me up, right? Because they're harsh often. But we sometimes think that's a Christian virtue, to be a wrangler, a quarreler, to win the arguments, to battle on the endless political debates that will go on for the rest of the 2020 that somehow that is the way of Jesus. But we're reminded here he's not like that. He's not making a big fuss about things. No, he's quietly going about his business. He's got a mission. And blessed is the one who's not offended by it. Jesus' will was to do the will of the Father who sees where? In secret. In secret. He wasn't there to wow the crowds with his ability to win debates. Every time it got heated, what does he do? He withdraws, doesn't he? Every time. When he's on the stand, he's silent, like a lamb going to the slaughter. He doesn't wow them with his debating skills. or his, he, he could destroy their arguments every time, but he doesn't. He usually has one response and carries on doing his ministry. He doesn't wow the masses with his personal piety and flaunt it, put on display. No, he had work to do providing unmeasured grace to those in need. He came, not as a quarreler, but to bruised reeds. He came to smoldering wicks. What's he talking about here? What's a bruised reed? I mean, it's insignificant, right? If you ever walk through a field, you see a reed hanging out like a tall piece of grass. And as you're walking through, you wouldn't think anything about it. You wouldn't even acknowledge it. You might not even be aware of it. And you would just walk right over it and stomp it, right? As you're going to wherever you're going, to cut through the grass. You don't think about those things. A smoldering wick would be a wick of a lamp. And as you you see the the flame of that, 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 that lamp beginning to flicker, It's about to go out because there's no life in it anymore. 
might say, that's useless. I don't need that one anymore. And you put the lamp out and you disregard it. But Jesus isn't like that. The bruised reed, which is bent a little bit, he doesn't come off and just smash it and move along. He doesn't see the, the one who's struggling and, is on, uh, and gasping for life and he, he dismisses them by squelching them and putting them out. Most kings aren't going to enact their rule by giving attention to such people, are they? It's not how you get on top in the world, is it? You gotta, you gotta just get yours and, and do it quickly and you need to make sure you, you surround yourself around the people who are gonna get you where you need to go. And the little people, you can disregard them. And if need be, you can step on their heads and get where you're going. Jesus isn't that type of king. Jesus isn't that way. And we'd say, yeah, that's right, that's right. But so often we resort or we champion or we think is virtuous those who trample over people. Jesus, though, here's the good news, brothers and sisters. He doesn't break you. You come to him wounded. You come to him weary from your own sin. Broken. And he mends. He doesn't finish you off. He takes the weak, the burden, the battered, the bruised, and he says, come and I will give you rest. He brings healing to the weary souls. And so in his eyes, there's no one who's a lost cause. No one in Jesus' eyes are a lost cause. Because everyone can be redeemed. No sin is too much for his grace. No person is too far from his reach. And no burden is too heavy for his lift. That's Jesus. And this means that you can come to him boldly to the throne of grace. And you have nothing to hide. You can lay your heart bare. You can confess your sins to him, to the depths of them, and even confess, Lord, I don't even know the depths. Search my heart and know me, O God, and find if there's any uh, wayward way within me. And you can rest assured that he can know the deepest, darkest sins of your life, and he will say, I will make you well. That's Jesus. You have nothing to hide when you come to Jesus. Nothing to be ashamed of when you come to Jesus. Nothing to fear, for he will bind your wounds, comfort your hearts, wash you clean, raise you up, and give you life in his name. That's what Jesus does. That's the servant of the Lord. Jesus' mission was to provide unmeasured grace to those in need. And all who come to him, and, and for all who do, Fourthly and finally, Jesus secures us the final victory. Jesus secures us the final victory. With Jesus' first coming, he ushered in what Isaiah prophesied as the year of the Lord's favor. Isaiah 61, for instance. He's bringing in this year of jubilee, if you're familiar with the Old Testament. And what is he going to do in this year, this period of, 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 of unmerited grace and favor and mercy? Well, he's going to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verse 1 says on this verse, Today's the day of salvation. Today God's grace can be found. His mercy is near. 
We're living in, brothers and sisters, an era of grace, an era of mercy that is being extended to all peoples. And his patience is on display before the world. That's why when we look at the world and we say, God, do something about that, he's being patient. Why? As Peter tells us, so that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. But all so often we want to be like John and James, sons of thunder, right? Bring down the fire now. And Jesus says, have you forgotten the grace that I have shown to you? Aren't you glad I didn't bring down the fire on you? That I didn't see you as a lost cause, a hopeless one? That as you were a bruised reed, I didn't break you? As you were a smoldering wick, I didn't quench your fire? It's by means of this abundant grace that, that Jesus is actually transforming hearts. One heart at a time, one individual at a time, and, and actually his kingdom purposes are moving forward. He's doing it silently under the ground. We'll see that in the, in the parables of the kingdom. It, it's like a leaven within the lump. You don't see it, but it's working. It's like the seed in the ground. You don't see it, but one day it's going to be a massive tree that fills the earth. But it's working. It's germinating. And these germinations are happening in everybody's heart. And his kingdom purposes are being accomplished as he's taking individuals who are captive to the evil one and he's making them his own captives. He's rescuing them from the evil one. And in so doing, he's actually conquering through the message of the cross. In fact, we too conquer the same way. We conquer the evil one, the book of Revelation says, by not loving our lives even unto death as we bear witness to him. Says so they conquered the evil one that way. And so even though in the world's eyes, doesn't this look weak? It looks like a lost cause. It looks foolish. It looks pitiful. But for us who know Jesus, we know it's the power of God. And we know that Christ is seated at the right hand of God, ruling through the hearts of men. And, and the scripture tells us he is putting his enemies under his feet. He's doing that. And on the last day, he will put the great enemy, Satan, sin, and death, under his feet. And he will conquer them forever. This is what Isaiah tells us. Until he brings justice to victory. On that day, when all God's people have been brought in, and all the sins of the world have totaled up to their full number, he will appear so that every eye may see him and every tongue confess and every eye will behold the one whom they've pierced. And either for some it will be a day of great joy and others it will be a great day of great mourning. For us who have laid hold of Christ, who have hoped in his name, this is gonna be a great day of victory, amen? Vindication. We're going to be shown to be the sons and daughters of God, the inheritors of the kingdom. It's going to be a great day. And as the Lord comes, he's going to rescue each and every one of us, and he's going to rescue us and put our enemies to shame. But for those who do not know him, who are spurning the grace of God that is being extended right now, for all the patience that's been endured, it will be no more on that day when he brings justice to victory. For the time being, he's not a quarreler. He's not a fighter. 
He's not here to crush you and put you out. He's accomplishing his purposes, slowly conquering, one heart at a time. But there is coming a day when the grace will be no more for those who have not believed. This justice that will come about and victory, it will be judgment for you. Justice and judgment is about putting things right in the world. For those who know Jesus, we want that kingdom. And that is, he's going to bring the righteous and everlasting life. But for the wicked, it's everlasting judgment. And there's a fire that will never be quenched and a torment that will never cease. And so if you don't know Christ, let me appeal to you, you are living on borrowed time. You're spurning abundant grace that is being multiplied to you every day. You're choosing eternal death over eternal life. And you're living in rebellion to a father who wants to delight in you. Today is the day of salvation. And Jesus opened his arms to whoever will come to him and he says, I will never cast you away. This is the mission of the servant. He makes us pleasing to the Father. He brings us the life of the kingdom. He provides us with unmeasured grace and he secures us final victory. Blessed is the one who is not offended by him. Let's pray. Father, we see the beauty and the splendor of your son. He is your beloved son with whom you are well pleased. He is the one who has proclaimed justice to us and we have believed. He is the one who has not sought to destroy us, but Lord, to mend us and to heal us and to has been gracious and kind to us. Though we have spurned his name time and time again, thank you, Jesus, that you did not put our wick out, that you did not break our bruised reeds. And Lord, we look forward to the day in which you return, the day that you promised to bring forth victory. And because of that, we as all the nations hope in you. You are our only hope. And I pray, Father, that we would take the only hope of the world to the world so that they may join in endless praise of your glorious name. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand as we close in response to what we've heard this morning.